So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Thanks to the fracking of shale, the United States has surpassed Saudi Arabia as an oil-producing nation, and has become an important and a growing exporter of crude. In November, the International Energy Agency predicted that U.S. oil production will grow at a rate unparalleled in history. Within the next 10 years, the U.S. will become a net oil exporter. The IEA predicts, for the first time since the 1950s. All this suggests we can finally allay our decades of anxiety about dependence on foreign oil, and achieve the dream of American energy independence. But is that really possible? And if so, is it something we should do? With me today is Ryan Kellogg. He's a professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy, and a specialist in energy economics. He's worked specifically on the economic consequences of the shale boom. Welcome back, Ryan. Great to be here, Jeff. Thank you very much. So, Ryan, you had an article come out in Forbes this month. Let me quote just a small portion of it. True energy independence is not economically feasible or even desirable, you say, owing to the globalization of crude oil markets. The U.S. shale surge does have economic and policy payoffs for the United States, but energy independence is not one of them. Well, this is startling.、Uh, not economically feasible or even desirable. Why not? So, I think it's helpful to think about sort of. What it means to be energy independent, and I think energy independence means very different things to different people. So, I think before getting to the sort of whether or not we should be energy independent, I think it's useful to at least first just think about what does that actually mean, and then we can talk about whether we whether we want that or not.、Um, so, I think in a lot of common parlance of the way energy independence is often interpreted as the U.S. no longer being an Net importer of crude oil.、Um, when we can talk about whether or not we want to sort of add other fuels like natural gas or electricity imports or stuff like that to that, most people talk about crude oil.、Um, and indeed, the U.S. has been a large importer of crude oil for a very long time. And until very recently, we've depended on imports for more than half of our oil consumption.、Um, we just haven't been able to produce enough at home. The shale boom has. Revolutionized all of that. We have this near doubling of U.S. domestic production, and all of a sudden we don't need much more imported crude. And in fact, we're actually exporting some crude at the moment. That said, in terms of whether we're a net importer or net exporter, people talk about U.S. crude oil exports right now, and we are doing that to the tune of about one and a half million barrels a day. But on net, we actually still 
import crude. Um, we're actually importing almost 8 million barrels a day still. It's different from what we export, but we're still a net importer. So on that just very basic sort of definition of the energy independence, do we net import or export, we actually still net import crude. Um, now that said, there are these projections that our exports will surpass imports by the end of the 2020s. Um, are we going to be energy independent then? By one definition, yes. Um, but my argument is by sort of a more economic definition of what energy independence actually means, uh, I would say no, uh, for the simple reason that even if we're exporting more crude oil than we import 10, 15 years from now, we're still going to be interacting with the global marketplace for crude oil. Um, it turns out that moving crude oil vast distances around the globe is something that's remarkably cheap to do. Um, for a few bucks a barrel, we have these super tankers. They hold two million barrels of oil. They're incredibly, they're incredibly efficient. This is what they're built for. Um, and they can move oil around the world very quickly and at very low cost. What that means is that it's very hard for the U.S. oil market to get out of sync price-wise with anywhere else in the world, meaning that as long as we're exposed to trade, we're not actually independent from events happening in the crude oil market thousands of miles away, even if we're an ad exporter. So how would that look on the ground? Let's say the, the price of oil went up globally. What would happen to the U.S. domestic market? Um, what would simply happen is that sort of U.S. oil producers would sort of see that, say, because of extra demand from Asia or China or because of some negative supply shock in the Middle East, there's a higher net demand for crude oil in the rest of the world. Um, U.S. producers will see that. They'll see this high, these high prices that they'd get by exporting oil, and you'd start to see U.S. production shift more towards exports rather than the domestic market. What does that ultimately do? That shift goes on until the U.S. domestic price rises up to about the level of the world price, maybe a little bit lower to account for the transportation cost. Again, we're only talking a few dollars a barrel. Um, but you know, supply demand is basically going to force the U.S. domestic price to move quite closely um, with events and prices that are happening elsewhere in the world. Okay, and it sounds like that happens regardless of whether the U.S. is producing enough oil for itself. And it happens because shipping is cheap and, cheap and easy. But um, we used to have an, an export ban that was just lifted a couple years ago. Uh, couldn't we bring that back? Um, so certainly in principle, policymakers could, you know, sort of see exactly the dynamics that we just talked about play out. Um, 20, 10 years from now, we're a, net, we're a net exporter of crude. There's a price shock elsewhere in the world. Domestic prices go up. People say, hey, what's going on here? This is happening because of exports. Let's shut this thing down. Um, and, sh and shut off crude oil exports. And we'll go back to the way things were just a few years ago where we couldn't export uh, anything at all. Um, you know, and in that world, sort of, you know, can the U.S. make itself an island in terms of crude oil and be, quote-unquote, self-sufficient in that sense, you know, in terms of implementing that policy? Yes, that's something we could do. Um, is that something we'd want to do? I'd say absolutely not. Um, 
you know, there's a couple ways to think about it. You know, one, you know, think about sort of why would we be exporting crude? Well, you know, we're going to export crude because we can get more value for the crude we produce by selling it abroad than either a selling it domestic domestically where it's valued less, um, sort of by revelation, given that we'd be exporting it, or realize more value than we'd get simply by leaving it in the ground. That is, in some sense, you know, if we shut ourselves off from this international trade market, we're leaving money and wealth on the table um, just because we're sort of not realizing the gains that arise from the fact that somebody somewhere else in the world, whether it's Europe or Japan or China or wherever, they're willing to pay a lot of money for this stuff that we make. Um, and we're able to realize that value by selling to them. It's no different than why we trade all sorts of other goods. The U.S. is a huge net exporter of food products and grains and all that and all that kind of stuff. Um, why do we do that? We make a lot of money by doing that, um, and you know this is has a huge reason why you know we have a Midwest that's full of farmers. A huge amount of that product gets exported, and we export all sorts of things for exact for exactly this reason. Um, and crude oil isn't really different um, in terms of those dynamics. And if anything, there's more value in the crude oil market due to from trading, just because the shipping costs are so low. Now, in your Forbes article, you do say there are some benefits to reduced reliance on foreign oil. What are those? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one thing that's happened even now, and even though we aren't a net exporter of crude oil yet, we're a net importer, but much less than than we than we used to be. Uh, what does that mean? It means that if we think about these external price shocks that have you know, driven a lot of U.S. policy, sort of supply disruptions in the Middle East or elsewhere, that sort of thing. Um, it used to be when we imported over half of our petroleum consumption, a big price shock was a big deal for the U.S. It's been associated in the past with recessions. We remember the big price shocks back in the 1970s and sort of and early 1980s um, that came out of the Middle East and Iran. Um, those are strongly correlated with, with recessions that happen around those times, same for 1991, 1992. Um, and when we import most of our oil, if the world oil price goes up, consumers overwhelmingly bear the brunt of that. That dynamic has now changed in the sense that there's a much closer supply-demand balance within the United States. So if the price of oil suddenly rises because of, because of something happening elsewhere in the world, whether it be the global demand or global supply, if the price of oil goes up by 30 bucks a barrel, sure, consumers might still suffer from that in terms of paying for it at the pump. But on the flip side, there's a huge U.S. domestic production industry now, a lot of it located in shale, that benefits immensely from that. Um, so in terms of just sort of sheer drain on the economy, when crude oil prices go up because of a global shop, that drain is really sort of tightened up um, now that shale is so, so dramatically increased U.S. production. I imagine that must also have an effect on OPEC and how much influence OPEC can have over prices. Yeah. This is a huge problem for, for OPEC and something um, that they've been struggling to deal with for the past several years. Um, you know, For the longest time, OPEC really played this role as sort of the quote-unquote 
sort of swing producer that had this ability, particularly Saudi Arabia, um, to ramp its production up and down on reasonably short notice um, to sort of try to get the crude price level they want. They've always had to deal with supply from non-OPEC countries, the U.S. included, like the North Sea, Deepwater Gulf of Mexico, conventional U.S. onshore production, and, th and those sorts of things. Those sources, those traditional sources of non-OPEC crude have always been very difficult to ramp up quickly. Um, think about building a new production platform in the middle of the North Sea or in 5,000 feet of water in the Gulf of Mexico. That takes years to come online. So if the price of oil gets shocked up because of OPEC or something else, it would it take it's historically taken a long time for production from the U.S. or other non-OPEC countries to kind of bounce back, which means that OPEC traditionally had a lot of power to influence prices. Shale doesn't work this way at all. Uh, the U.S. industry is set up in a situation that they can very quickly ramp up shale drilling, fracking, and completion of wells in response to prices. We've seen a lot of that over the past year. This is this tremendous run-up in production that the U.S. has experienced over the past year. Uh, and this really limits what you can do if you're sitting in Vienna at your annual OPEC meeting, because you now know that if you try and cut back your own OPEC production to try and jack up the price of oil. Shale drillers are going to see that. They'll be able to respond quickly and bring more oil onto the market. That basically dampens whatever that price bump you were hoping for as an OPEC member. You're, you're just not going to get the same price bump you would have gotten five, ten years ago. Would uh, I imagine American production would have a similar effect on price shocks that aren't necessarily intentional as well, that they could mute them. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's a very similar dynamic. Yeah. So if something, if sort of growth in China or India or someplace like that just absolutely takes off and starts pulling up oil prices along the lines of what we saw in the mid 2000s, pre shale, when the price of oil got up to 140 bucks a barrel. Now, if that happens, um, you're going to see a massive supply response coming out of U.S. shale um, that we didn't see 10, 15 years ago during that previous run-up, and it's going to make a difference. And it's going to make a serious difference in just sort of how quickly and how high oil prices can rise in a particular period of time, and sort of the speed with which prices might rebound to a price that's sort of ultimately going to be lower. So generally, I think Americans have seen price shocks as a bad thing. You mentioned recessions that we've had that, that were caused by increases in the oil price. Now that the U.S. is a big oil producer, could these increases in the price of oil be good for the U.S.? They're definitely going to be good for some people. So, you know, if you're a shareholder of a major U.S. oil and gas firm, if you're an employee of one of these firms, if you're a contractor who provides oil field services to these folks, um, you know, big positive oil price shocks are, you know, go-go season as, as, far as far as those folks are concerned. Same goes if you happen to be a mineral owner or a landowner in one of these, in one of these shale producing areas and you're getting royalties checks. And this is basically how the actual private owners of oil and gas are compensated or the states or government itself. Your royalty checks start going up as well. So for folks in and around the U.S. petroleum industry, um, 
they see big wins um, when oil prices go up. And those wins come in the form of, one, just sort of pure windfall for for wells that have already been drilled, where the production's already online and streaming. Um, and the wins come from sort of the incentive and ability to undertake more drilling and completion projects and open up more land um, as prices go up and sort of turns sort of more areas economic. Do we have any information yet on whether those wins spread out to the general population or to people outside of the oil industry in the U.S.? Uh, this is one of those areas where the more research could potentially be fruitful to understand exactly sort of who are the beneficiaries these days in terms of what happens when U.S. oil prices do, do go up. We, like we know who loses, sort of anyone who's you know paying for oil drives a lot and pays for gas at the pump, oil price goes up, you're going to pay another 50 cents or whatever it is a gallon. Um, but yeah, then the question really becomes sort of, Think about royalty checks, for instance. Um, a bunch of people in North Dakota and West Texas own the mineral rights and are collecting these royalty checks. Where do they spend them? What do they do with them? If they're making enough money, do they just sort of pull up roots and move away somewhere else and sort of spend the money elsewhere? And then how does that actually get distributed ac across the economy? So, Ryan, I know you also work on energy infrastructure. And... Um I'm curious if, if we're in a situation where infrastructure limits what we can do with oil, both in terms of importing it and exporting it, meaning that um, we only have so many pipelines and rail cars and terminals that we can use for exports, and we can only import so much because with all this domestic production, there's only so much storage. Is that a real problem? Um, it's certainly, in some places of the country, it continues to be an issue. One um, thing that's happening now in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is emerged as a major terminal for export of crude, of shale oil that's being produced in West Texas in the Permian Basin, um, is an effort to actually build an export facility that can accommodate these large 2 million barrel super tankers that are the most efficient means of getting oil oil. So, um, across the globe. Um, right now, we actually don't have the capability to fill those those kinds of ships, um, which means we're using inefficient smaller vessels. Um, so that's changing. Um, you know, it, these sorts of terminals don't pop up in a day. They take time to build. They take money to build. Um, but the industry does seem to show some appetite to respond to these issues. Um, if you think back, for instance, uh, four or five years ago, um, the big issue we faced at that time was not an export constraint at the time, the, um, but there was, a, there was a political export constraint. The U.S. export ban was still alive, um, but there was an issue of we couldn't even get the oil to the Gulf Coast. It was getting bottled up in the Midwest. Um, what did the industry do about that? They eventually got together and started building some pipelines, both from, say, Oklahoma, the Cushing Oil Terminal, down to the Gulf Coast, and pipelines, this is Dakota Access, from North Dakota itself in the Bakken Shale, um, which was producing a million barrels a day. How do you get that oil down to the Gulf Coast? These pipelines took years to construct. They're now online. And um, what about other costs and benefits to the shale boom? Maybe in uh, sectors we haven't talked about outside of the oil industry. Yeah. Um, so 
If you move sort of downstream from the oil industry and think about sort of what's happening in refining, say a step a, a step down, um, what's really changed is that there are clearly some refineries who have turned out to be big winners from this and others that have turned out to be doing not necessarily so well. Um, so for instance, sort of major refineries in the Midwest, um, particularly during the era when sort of crude oil had a really hard time getting to the Gulf Coast, you actually saw depressed crude oil prices in the Midwest. If you were a refiner in the Midwest during that period, this is 2011 to 2014, it was party time. Um, they had access to cheap crude that nobody else could get because the pipelines couldn't get it out. Um, and they were selling gasoline and diesel, the refined products, at the same price that all the other refineries in the U.S. were selling to. Um, it was kind of this interesting period when crude oil couldn't get out of the Midwest, but in terms of trading gasoline and diesel, those pipelines had all sorts of capacity, which meant that sort of gasoline prices were more or less, pre-tax anyway, um, were the same pretty much anywhere in the United States, except maybe the West Coast. So if you had access. You were a refiner that ac had access to this cheap crude, um, but then got this really high gasoline price. They were just making money hand over fist. Um, those go-go days aren't are more or less gone, and sort of they've returned to normal profits. Um, but there's a huge win for those folks at for a particular time, um, and the folk the refiners who haven't done so well are the ones that have. So are sort of geared in particular for traditional sources of imported U.S. crude oil, and particularly sort of heavier crude oil from places like Venezuela or Mexico. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. It's been a, f a lot of fun talking with you. And thanks to all our listeners. You can find Ryan Kellogg's Forbes article by visiting the EPIC website at epic.uchicago.edu. That's also where you can find more podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Jeff McMahon.